0: All right. well this morning we're going to be looking at numbers 13 and 14 and we're going to be talking about uh, one of my personal heroes. We're going to talk... Why is it still moving? There we go. So, numbers 13 and 14 is where we are this morning. Um, We're going to get to talk about some heroes in my life and one of the first that I get to share with you is this lady... Whose name is Corrie Ten Boom? You may have heard that name before. She's quite famous. Uh, She was very instrumental in protecting Jews during World War II. She's Dutch. She grew up in a. A Dutch Christian family. Her dad was a watchmaker and they, they had a, a house, um, a house that was intricate enough that they were able to build a false room into it. It's really cool. Obviously the hole that she's next to wasn't there. They just opened that up so you could see behind the walls. The The idea is that this Christian family cared so much about their Jewish neighbors who were getting hunted down by the Nazis that they built these false rooms into their house behind the walls where they could hide refugees. And this was a really risky thing because the police station where the Nazis occupied the city was on their same block. like It was like a half block away. It was extremely dangerous. And yet for three years they succeeded in saving the lives of countless Jewish refugees until actually they were turned in by a traitor and and she was sent off to a concentration camp. And When you read Corey's story, which if you're not familiar with it, you really should be. It's an amazing story of her and her family's faith. All of her family died in concentration camp. She's the only one who made it out. Um, When I read that story, what I ask myself, and maybe you can identify with this. When I read her story, I ask myself, would I have been brave enough to do the same thing? Would I have been brave enough as a follower of Christ to risk not only myself, but my whole family? To save the lives of these Jewish refugees? Or would I have been like most of Corey's neighbors? Many of whom were Christians but they weren't brave enough. And so they turned a blind eye. And and they would not open their doors to Jewish refugees who were seeking refuge. What is it that makes some Christians make incredibly risky courageous choices to obey God. When so many others do not. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to think about what is it in our lives that can make us courageous to follow God when it's incredibly risky. Now, in our particular context, it's not going to be about hiding Jewish refugees in the walls. For us, it's going to look like believing faculty who I've talked to here at a and or at Blinn who know that if they share their faith openly, it could cost some tenure. It could have major ramifications for the rest of their lives. We're talking about business owners who feel called to obey God and be truthful and honest with their business and be generous with their business, but they know that if they do that, it could cost them their business. We're talking about college graduates, like recent college graduates who feel called to go onto the mission field and to minister among people and in places where they know if they're found out, they could be arrested, they could even be executed for it. We're talking about families, like we we just talked about, who feel called by God to open their home to foster children, knowing that it's going to be incredibly painful and hard and difficult and maybe even dangerous at times. What is it that can empower that risky obedience to God in our lives? To try to answer that question, we're going to look at Israel's story in Numbers 13 and and so let me catch you up for a moment, because Israel is going to face a, a really risky choice. This is a really scary moment for the nation of Israel. So here's a map of the part of the world that we've been looking at. Basically from Egypt to Israel, we started to the left. Israel was in Egypt as slaves. Beginning of the book of Exodus, they're delivered and they cross the Red Sea, that's a, the second red star there, and they move south to the, to the wilderness, to, to the mountain of Sinai, where they receive God's law, the Mosaic Covenant. They're there for quite a while, we talked a lot about that. And then God leads them north, they go basically directly north to a place called Kadesh Barnea, it is the southern boundary of the, the, the kind of the center of the promised land. The land that God had promised to Abraham and to his descendants, which shaded in red there, all this land belongs to you forever. So at this point in the story, they have made it to the border of the promised land. So what's going to happen now? Let's see what God does and what they do in this moment. So let's pick it up in chapter 13. We're going to start with spies going into the land. So look with me at chapter 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, each one a leader among you. (laughs) Jump down to verse 17. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like. Whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time. Now it was the time of the first grape harvest. All right, so... God calls Israel to send spies into the land. That was real typical. Very normal, very reasonable thing to do. Send some spies into the land to figure out where the cities are, where the roads are, where the resources are to make a plan for how you're going to march into this land. So these 12 spies go into the land for 40 days. They're there for 40 days and then they come back and they make their report to the nation of Israel. Let's pick that up in verse 25. When they, that is the spies, returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons in Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told them and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong." And the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in, spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Okay, so the spies come back. There's a lot going on here. They give two reports. You have 10 spies who give a very negative report of the land. So yeah, it's a beautiful land. It's wonderful land. There's a lot of cities in the land. And a lot of those cities are really big and really strong and inhabited by people who are mighty warriors strong, tall people. There, there were giants in the land at this time. Basically, the inhabitants of the land were much taller than the Jewish people, stronger than the Jewish people, man for man. And so 10 spies come back with a very negative report and say, it's, it's too much. We cannot enter the land. Two of the spies, though, Joshua and Caleb, they come back with a very different report. It's a beautiful land and there's lots of guys in it, but we can take it. God's with us. We can easily defeat these folks. So you've got very, two very different reports. The thing that's interesting to me, though, is that in both reports, the facts are the same. All 12 spies are dealing with the same facts. The land is indeed beautiful and productive. The inhabitants of the land are indeed strong and numerous. Everybody agreed on the facts, but they have two very different interpretations. So Joshua and Caleb, they strongly encourage faithfulness. Joshua and Caleb, they look at the beauty of the land and and interpret it as a sign that God is good. Look at how beautiful the land is. That, That leads us to believe that God is good. He's on our side. He has promised this beautiful thing for us, so let's go in and get it. The ten other spies, they interpret the strength of the inhabitants to say God is not good. God can't be trusted. God has deceived us. He's led us to a place where we're all going to die. We should have stayed in Egypt. So you have two very different reports from these 12 spies. Now the nation of Israel faces their choice. This is the scary moment for Israel. What are they going to do as they face this risky decision? Well, let's pick it up in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, "'Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt?' So they said to one another, "'Let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt.'" Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And let's pause there. So the people feel fear. And it's important to recognize that the fear that they felt, that was reasonable. It it makes perfect sense. God is telling them to go to war. You would have to be a psychopath not to feel fear when you're going into war. So the feeling, they're not guilty for that. It's reasonable and appropriate to feel fear. They're guilty because in their fear, they choose to follow the ten instead of the two. They choose to follow the ten who fixated on the obstacles and the problems. And by following the ten, they choose to rebel. They actually do it twice They rebel first and say, let's appoint somebody to take us to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb plead with them. They rebel a second time by picking up stones to put them to death on the spot. So the nation has decided we will not trust God. We will not go into the promised land as he has commanded us. So what does God do? Well, God is ready to show up. Next part of the story, the sad part, is God's discipline. Let's pick it up. Second half of verse 10. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. And I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. This has happened before. Once again, just like with the golden calf, God is threatening to wipe out the entire nation and start over with Moses. But Moses will once again plead with God, please don't do that. Please have mercy on these, your people. And once again, God will relent. He will have mercy on his people. So let's pick it up there in verse 20. So after Moses has interceded for the people, verse 20, so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I have performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet who have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. Jump down to verse 28. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you've spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however... Whom you said they would become a prey. I will bring them in and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Not a very cheery passage. So the consequence for saying no to God is they lose the promised land for that generation. That generation of Israelites lose the opportunity to inherit the promised land. Now here's the key. This is really important because a lot of people get confused about this. The consequence for this disobedience is not hell. Not getting to go into the promised land is not equivalent to not getting into heaven. If that was the case, then guess who you're not going to see in heaven? Anyone in this generation, including Moses and Aaron. Because they were both excluded from the promised land because of disobedience. However, we actually, we know Moses is in heaven. He's one of the few people we do because he shows up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So getting into the promised land is not the same thing as getting into heaven. They're different. We know that most of this generation were believers in in the sense that we just celebrated. They had trusted in God. We will see them in heaven. So they were saved the same way you and I are. How are we saved? Not by following God into heaven than to war and to battle no, by, by simple faith, by simple trusting in God as our savior. Most of this generation, we don't know how many, had trusted in God in their, as their savior. So they were guaranteed heaven, just like we are. However, God wanted more for the, for this generation than just heaven. And that's the thing that people get confused about. They think that God's goal for their life is, I want to get you to heaven. Well, God does want to get you to heaven, But he wants much more for you than that. For the Israelites, what was the more God wanted? God wanted the promised land for them in this life. God wanted them to inherit that beautiful land he had promised to Abraham so they could enjoy it and become a light to the rest of the world. God wanted them to be a kingdom of priests, enjoying his prosperity and blessing in the promised land. He wanted that for them. But that required more than just a one-time decision to trust God as Savior. That required a life of faith, and they said no. They were not willing to trust God when it got difficult, and as a result, they lost that opportunity of inheriting the promised land. And, And that consequence of losing the promised land, it was irrevocable. Look with me a little bit later in the chapter, towards the very end of chapter 14. Look at verse 39. When Moses spoke these words, this consequence to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. They were sorry for what they had done. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up. Do not enter the promised land, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. They're going in. Okay, God, we're going to obey. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. What is this about? Well, it's about believers who were saved in the sense of they're children of God. They're going to heaven, but they had made a choice at a key moment in time not to trust God in risky obedience. They had said no to God when they felt afraid. And, and it's important to note, this is the tenth time they've tested God. It wasn't like one failure. They had done it 10 times and God had been merciful and given them another chance and another chance and another chance. But after 10 times of rebelling, God says, that's it. You have lost the promised land and there's nothing you can do to get that back. You're still going to see those people in heaven, but they lost the glory of the promised land in this life because they weren't willing to trust God in a risky situation. So that's... That's the story from the text this morning. Now, what we want to do is think about what are the timeless principles for us? What is this saying to us living roughly 3,400 years later? Well, the, the big idea about this passage, what it's all about, is the struggle that all of God's children face between fear and faith. When God challenges us to risky obedience... When God challenges us to obey Him when it's scary, we're going to feel fear and it's going to be hard to exercise faith. I, I think that that's probably something that we all have faced at some point in our lives. If you don't know what fear feels like as a follower of Christ, you're just too young. You'll get there. All of us are going to feel fear at some point in this life when, when God calls us to do something that's scary, that's risky. And so I want to talk about this struggle that all of us either have experienced or will experience. But I have to kind of pick it apart. So before we can get to this battle between fear and faith, I want to start with the first line. I want to talk about what it means to be God's children. I want to clarify for a little bit. Because again, this is something that a lot of people misunderstand. A lot of people have assumed that not getting in the promised land means going to hell. It doesn't. So I want to clarify for a little bit how the gospel works. How exactly do we become children of God? This is always how it's worked for the Israelites and for us as well. So let's start there. We become God's children through a moment of faith. What do I mean by a moment of faith? Well, the gospel, what we celebrated this morning in baptism. Gospel means good news. And the good news of the gospel says that all of us have sinned, We've fallen short of what God expects of us. We we can't earn our way to heaven. We can't live the perfect life that God requires. We have sinned and so we need help. But the good news is God offers that help. He offers eternal life and forgiveness of all our sins as an absolutely free gift that was earned for us by Jesus. Jesus did all the work that eternal life requires. When he died on the cross... For our sins and rose from the dead. He did all the work. He earned eternal life. Not just for you and me. But for Abraham and for Moses. Because God stands above time. They were saved by the death of Christ. Even though they didn't yet know about it. Jesus died for all human sin. And rose from the dead. So that God can offer eternal life to everyone. As an absolutely free gift. So how do you get that free gift? Well at some moment in your life. Some discreet moment. You say yes. Yes. At some moment in time, you believe that God is offering you eternal life as a free gift through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's again what these kids were celebrating. They weren't saved when they went down in the water. They were saved at some point. They may not know exactly when that moment was, but there was some moment when each of those children chose to believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead so they could have eternal life as a gift. The moment that they believe they become children of God and they can never lose that no matter what happens in their future no matter whether or not they faithfully follow God even when they're afraid even when it's risky that doesn't change the fact that they are forever children of God once you're a child of God you can't lose that once saved always saved the the best verse I I know of like if you've wondered how do I know that once saved always saved how do I know that if I trusted in Jesus, I will for sure go to heaven. There's lots of wonderful verses, but this is the best one. Romans 8. So just memorize this one. Really, really good. Romans eight thirty-eight to 39. That's the last two verses of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he is asking the question that we're dealing with. What could separate you who at some point in the past trusted in Jesus as your Savior? What could separate you from the saving love of God in Christ Jesus? Well, you're actually in there do you see yourself? Where are you in the list of things that Paul says can't separate you? Any other created thing? That's you. That's me. What's Paul's point? There is nothing you could ever do or not do that could separate yourself from the saving love of God and Jesus. Even if 10 years from now you stop trusting God. You say, this is too hard, this is too risky, this is too scary, I'm done with this, and you walk away from the faith. Guess what? You're still saved, because you're a created thing, and it is not within the range of options of created things to be able to separate ourselves from the family of God. So here's how I illustrate it. I like to talk about it as if you were going to Easterwood Airport. If you're going down to Easterwood Airport, because you want to go to Dallas, so yes, in our analogy here, I'm comparing Dallas to heaven I've been there. It's not, but you can't currently fly from Easterwood to Colorado. So I got to work with what options I have. So we're just going to compare it there. So let's say that your goal is to fly to Dallas. You want to fly to Dallas. Well, you can flap your arms as hard as you want. You can't fly yourself to Dallas, right? That's, that's about like trying to save yourself. You, you can't get yourself to heaven no matter how hard you work. It is not possible. Jesus said, it was crystal clear, if you want to earn heaven, if you want to work your way to heaven, you've got to be as perfect as I am. None of us are. So that option is off the table. So how can you fly to Dallas? Well, you get on an airplane. You have to choose to get on an airplane. You walk down the jetway and you get in the airplane because the airplane can carry you to Dallas. It can fly you to Dallas. So when you think about flying to Dallas, you recognize there is a discrete moment in time, an actual moment, When you walk down that jetway and get in the plane. You don't do it the whole way to Dallas. You do it at one moment in time. You make a decision. You decide to believe that this airplane is worthy of my trust. I've looked at the evidence. I believe it's reasonable to trust this airplane to get me safely to Dallas. So you make a decision to walk down the jetway and get in the plane and they close the door. After that moment, what gets you safely to Dallas? Is it your faith in the airplane? No. The airplane doesn't care whether you believe in it or not. The airplane's an airplane. It's going to get you safely to Dallas because that's what it does. Well, so it is with salvation. There is a discrete moment in time in which you choose to walk down the jetway and get on the plane, which is Jesus Christ. You choose to trust him. Jesus, you are my savior. You died for me. You rose from the dead so I could have eternal life as a free gift. I'm going to trust you with my eternal destiny. I'm going to trust you to get me to Dallas or heaven. Okay? So you make that decision to trust Jesus. Once you've made the decision, the door's shut. Your, your continued trust in Jesus doesn't change anything. The plane is getting you to Dallas. Jesus is getting you to heaven. There's nothing you can do to change that fact so it is in salvation, so it was for the generation of Moses, so it is in our generation. If there has been a moment in time in which you have said yes to the free gift of eternal life found in Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God, you are saved, and you can never lose it, no matter what you do or don't do. Once saved, always saved. Now, if there's not been that moment, If you look back at your life, you say, yeah, there was never some time when I said yes to God's gift. I just kind of do church because it's what we do. Well, I would encourage you. You you need to walk the jetway. You you need to make that decision. Right now, Jesus, I'm going to stop trusting in my arms to fly me to Dallas. I'm going to stop trusting in my church attendance, my good deeds, my charitable giving to earn heaven. I'm going to trust you alone to carry me safely to heaven. So if there hasn't been that moment, please come talk to me. Talk to somebody here. We'd love to help you have that moment where you trust in Jesus as your Savior. If you have had that moment, then you can take confidence in the fact your salvation is guaranteed. There's absolutely nothing you could possibly do or not do in the future that could jeopardize it because you are a created thing. You're safe in the hands of God. So... You have entered the family of God through a moment of faith. But now that we're in the family of God, God wants our faith to grow. He wants it to grow. Not so we can earn heaven. Not so we can keep heaven. That's already taken care of. God wants us to trust him more in the remainder of our life, so that he can use us and bless us more because God wants more for us than just heaven. And that brings us back to that thing that so many people don't get this. So many people think that the goal of the Christian life is get to heaven. You get to heaven, but that's not nearly enough for God. God wants something much more for you than just get to heaven. What is that thing? Well, I can't, I don't have time to fully unpack it this morning. Well, just summarize it. God wants to build his kingdom in this universe for eternity, and he wants humans to rule it. God created you to rule. That is your your created mandate. You were created to rule God's world. He wants you to do that, but if you're going to rule God's world for all eternity, you must be faithful in this life ruling God's universe for eternity requires more than a moment of faith it requires a lifetime of faith so God's goal for you is not just to get you to heaven but to reward you with the opportunity of ruling his creation for all time but you must trust him more and more throughout this life that's where Israel failed most of them had heaven guaranteed but they said no when it was time to trust God in the midst of a scary situation. So what are we going to do when we face risk? When we face a scary situation, are we going to trust God more and more? Take those risky steps of obedience? Or, like Israel, are we going to give in to fear? Or are we going to just surrender? So let's talk about this practically. Obviously, the better option is to grow in faith. The better option is to trust God in scary situations. But how do we do that? Because you can't wish away the fear. When God challenges you to do something scary, you can't make yourself not be afraid. So how do you grow faith in the face of fear? Now, I do want to clarify for a second. As I talk about fear this morning, I'm not talking about like an anxiety disorder or a phobia, that's that's a different thing that needs counseling and and possibly medication. It's very important to get help for that. That's not really the realm of what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about this morning is the logical, normal fear that all of us feel when God challenges us to do something that is risky or scary. So again, back to the examples I gave you at the beginning this morning. This is the Christian professor. There's many of you in this audience that face this who you know you're called to be a, a light and a witness for Jesus on campus, but you know it could cost you. Either respect or tenure, it could cost you your career. This is the Christian business owner who feels called to, to, to lead his business or her business in a way that is ethical and completely honest and generous to employees and community, and, and yet you know that could cost you, not just profit, it could cost you your business. I'm talking about the recent college graduate, one of you who feels called to take the gospel to someplace that is dangerous, that is closed, where you could be persecuted. You know God wants you to do that. I'm talking about the Christian family that feels called to open their doors to a foster child or or to adoption. They feel afraid of the pain and the struggle, the difficulty that that will be. It is reasonable to feel afraid in those kind of situations. It's risky what God's calling you to do. It's scary. It's hard. You feel afraid and that's totally reasonable. You You can't snap your fingers and make that fear go away. You're not guilty for feeling afraid. Let's be really clear about that. You're human for feeling afraid. The question is, in the midst of that fear you feel over what God is challenging you to do, how can you grow faith that will empower obedience? Two steps that we got from this passage that were kind of embedded in this passage. You may or may not have seen them. If you want to grow faith when you struggle with fear, you must choose wisely what you focus on and who you listen to. So let's let's look at both of those. How to grow faith in the face of fear. Number one, you must choose wisely what you focus on. And what I mean by that is, is you can either choose to focus your eyes on the hardships of obedience or the faithfulness of God. You have those two options. So think about the 12 spies. Ten of the spies focused on the hardships, right? They were all dealing with the same facts, It's all the same facts, but which facts are you going to look at most of the time? Well, for the ten, the primary facts that they looked at were the strength of the inhabitants, the opposition, the obstacles in their way, the risk, the danger. They focused on that. For Joshua and Caleb, what did they focus on? Well, they acknowledged that this is true. Yeah, those are big guys in there, but they focused on the faithfulness of God, the goodness of the land. And by choosing what to focus on, you can either inflame faith or inflame fear. That's really how it works. You get to grow faith or grow fear based on what you focus your eyes on. Now, let's be really clear. There is a time for analyzing risk and planning contingencies and counting the cost. Jesus actually talks about that. There is a time to look clearly at the risks and the hardships and the obstacles. You need to do that. God doesn't want you rushing foolishly into danger. No, he wants you to step back and analyze the risk and use your mind and think through what are my contingency plans? What are the risks here? What, what are the hardships? He wants you to face facts, but then once you have faced the facts, he wants you to focus your eyes on his faithfulness. After you spend a little bit of time counting the cost, you focus your eyes on the faithfulness and goodness of God. And that will encourage faith in your heart. Here's a a passage that I find very helpful in my own life. I love this passage. I don't know if you've thought about it in these ways before, though. Hebrews 12. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this race, we're being told that the Christian life is like a marathon race. You're not running to get to heaven. Heaven's already guaranteed the moment you become a Christian. You're running so that you can honor God and receive the reward of more and more opportunity to rule for him and glorify him. So you're running this marathon race. And in this marathon race, you're going to face temptations of sin. And you're going to face encumbrances. Those are non-sinful things that get in your way. Obstacles that want to trip you up. And the author says, don't look at those things. Don't focus on the temptations. Don't focus on the encumbrances and the hardships. Fix your eyes where? On Jesus, you, you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You think about what he did for you, how he died for you, how he rose for you, how good he is, that right now he's on the throne blessing you and protecting you. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. When people ask me who are, who are struggling, how do I know I'm saved? I'm struggling with fear. I'm struggling with anxiety. I don't tell them, look at your life. Look at how good you are. Look at how good you got. I tell look at Jesus. That is the only safe place to look. Keep your eyes fixed on the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus and it will empower you to keep running this marathon. So you get to choose what to focus on. Here's how Paul puts it a little bit later in Scripture in 2 Timothy. And just for context, 2 Timothy, Paul wrote this a few months before he was beheaded. So he he knows as he writes these verses, he is about to be executed. He's in prison awaiting his death. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Paul had great reason to be afraid. He is in prison right now. He knows he's about to die, and yet he finds courage to persevere. How? By remembering Jesus, by remembering the gospel. By remembering the, the word of God that had saved him and that was continuing to be at work. He focuses on the faithfulness and goodness of God and of Jesus. And it gives him courage. And one of the reasons I actually I love this passage. I think it's easy when we think about um, faith in the midst of fear to get caught up in personality types. Like are you an optimist or a pessimist? Are you a glass half full person or a glass half empty person? Well, Paul's glass is totally empty. This isn't about personality types at all. Paul's a realist. In the letter, he says, I'm dying. I'm about to die. He knows. So this isn't about personality types. It's about staring reality in the face and saying, I have chosen to walk this path because I'm so fixated on Jesus. I'm so fixated on his faithfulness. I'm so fixated on the goodness of God. It gives me courage even in the face of my reality. One of the people who's really inspired me in, in this lesson is a girl from Southwood. Her name is Sam. Some of you know her. Um, Sam graduated and she served here at the church for a while. And then she felt clearly called by God to take the gospel to a country that is closed, where the gospel is not proclaimed at all, and is so dangerous that if she is found out, it is likely that she could be imprisoned or executed. I can't even tell you where she is. I can't tell you the people that she works among because she is in such incredible danger at all times. And so you look at this decision. I mean, we're talking a, a young girl. She's in her mid-20s. She has a college education. She has all options in front of her. And she chooses to go to one of the most dangerous places on earth to share the gospel among people whom she knows. Most of these people hate me and want me dead. Why? Because she felt called to do that, and in the midst of fear—and yes, she felt afraid—we talked about it. she felt fear. Who wouldn't feel fear in the midst of that fear? Sam chose to focus her eyes on the worthiness of Jesus. And if you ever had a chance to meet Sam and talk to her about, it, that's all she talked about—how worthy Jesus is. Yeah, this is dangerous. There's a real chance I'll die, but Jesus is worthy of that. And so she had counted the cost. Again, it's not person. She's not an optimist. No, oh, I'll be fine. No. She knows this, this could work out really badly for me. She's a realist who chooses to focus on the worthiness of Christ, and it gives her incredible courage. And I'll be completely honest with you guys. Sam is far braver than I am. I'm amazed at her and her willingness to follow Jesus in the midst of incredible risk. And she did it because she kept her eyes fixed on the goodness and faithfulness of God. So that's the first step. If you want to grow faith in the midst of fear, you've got to choose wisely what you focus on. Focus on the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, not the hardships or risks of obedience. Second step, if you want to grow faith in the midst of fear, you've got to choose wisely who you listen to. When you are afraid, you need to choose to listen to people who encourage faith rather than people who discourage faith. So the nation of Israel, when it was time for them to make a decision, who did they listen to? They had both options. Joshua and Caleb, encouragers of faith. The ten, discouragers of faith. They get to choose who they listen to, they chose the ten. And that led them to doubt. Because who you choose to listen to shapes what you're going to believe and what you're going to do. It has an incredible effect upon you. And so when you feel afraid, when you feel anxious... Who are the voices that you let into your head? Who are the people that you let speak to you? And I'm not just talking about person-to-person conversation. I'm also talking about the, the voices on TV and radio and internet and print that you let into your head. Who is it that you listen to? Is it people who encourage faith or discourage faith? In Hebrews chapter 10, I keep coming back to Hebrews because there's so much parallelism here. Hebrews 10 We're told by the author, and he's writing to a group of believers, these are Christians, they're already guaranteed heaven, let us hold fast a confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A little bit of background for you. This believing audience is facing intense persecution. Not like whatever we have in this country. I'm talking like imprisonment, seizure of assets, being fired from jobs, and being killed for their faithfulness to Jesus. And after experiencing that persecution for many years, they are tired and they want to give up. And for them, if they will just go back to practicing Judaism publicly because they were Jewish believers, the persecution will stop. And so they're tempted to give up in this moment of incredible testing. And and the author says, no, don't do that. Hold fast to your confession of Christ. How are you going to do that? You're told later in the passage, by not forsaking our assembling together. He's talking about church continuing to gather together in fellowship with one another at church and in small groups. Let's continue to surround ourselves with the fellowship of faith, with the, with the brotherhood and sisterhood of God's people. Why? So we can encourage and stimulate one another to faithfulness. Let's continue to speak words of encouragement to one another. That is how you find courage in the midst of fear and anxiety is you continue to gather together with one another. I remember hearing from one of my mentors before I got married that the strength of your marriage, Blake, is largely going to be determined by the couples that you two surround yourselves with. So for a very large extent, how strong your marriage is will be determined by the strength of the marriages around you. You get to pick who you hang out with. And so if the couples around you, if they are encouragers of marital faithfulness, if they're the kind of people who speak positively about their spouses, who speak positively about life, and about their kids, and about the faithfulness of God, even if they struggle, they're realists. They, they, they're challenged from time to time, but the basic content of their conversation is about faithfulness and goodness in the marriage. That's good for your marriage. That will rub off on you. In contrast, if you, the, if you spend most of your time as a couple around couples who are always complaining about one another... Always complaining about their spouse, always complaining about their kids, always complaining about the marriage, or spouses that talk actively and frequently about leaving each other, that's going to rub off on you too. Now that doesn't mean that you as a couple won't be called from time to time to minister to a couple that's struggling, and is negative, and is complaining, but that's a ministry, that's not not a friendship. What, what that mentor was telling me is as you choose the couples that you're going to double date with and go on a game nights with and go out to the movies with, choose couples who are encouragers of faithfulness because that will largely determine the strength of your own marriage. I'll give you another example. It's another hero of mine. I'm sharing a number of heroes of mine. They're all women, actually. I just realized. I didn't put that together. So Cory Timboom Boom and Sam. And, and now uh, a hero of mine in my life now is a lady named Elizabeth. So Elizabeth began to follow Jesus after many, many years of addiction to drugs and incarceration. She was in prison for a while. Um, When she got out, uh, she faced a decision. What is life going to look like now? that I I know Jesus now. I'm out of prison. What's life going to look like? Well, if she would have read the statistics, it would have filled her with fear. If you look at the statistics of how many drug addicts to, to serious illicit drugs fall back into addiction, it's terrifying or former convicts go back to prison, it's terrifying. But she didn't focus on that. Instead, she made some really good decisions. As soon as she got out of prison, Elizabeth moved into a Christian women's recovery center in Bryan, where she would be surrounded 24-7 with other women who would encourage sobriety and faithfulness to Jesus. She also joined Celebrate Recovery for more accountability, more help in walking the path. She also began actively serving with other godly women and sharing it like... um, Uh, Prisons and shelters to youth to encourage them to faithfulness. She surrounded herself with all of these faith-filled voices instead of fear-filled voices. And so here we are now. She has been walking in sobriety for years. She's currently holding down two jobs. Mine just one. She's got two jobs at all the time. She became an on-ramp client. We gave her a car. Then she became an on-ramp sponsor and began bringing us women. And now she serves on our on-ramp board and actually directs our client review committee She's become a pillar of the community and like everyone in this town knows Elizabeth because she chose to respond to a very risky, scary situation of getting right out of prison by surrounding herself with people who would encourage faith. That's the power of surrounding yourself with voices of encouragement. Find the Joshua and the Calebs in your life who will speak life-giving words of encouragement to you. So now as you think about your own life, as you think about what God is doing in your life, what has he called you to that you haven't yet done because it feels too scary? What step of faith, what step of obedience do you look at and say, I, I know that God has put that on my plate. I haven't done it yet because I'm too scared. Or maybe you're not willing to admit you're too scared, but it just, it just makes me a little anxious, a little uncomfortable. I just, I'm not ready to do that yet. What is that Thing. So it, it could be sharing the gospel knowing that it could cost you a job or a promotion or friendship. It could be taking a risk at work or with your business to be truthful and ethical and generous. It could be saying no to temptation when it feels like You're going to give in. It's impossible not to give in. It could be reengaging with your spouse in your marriage. It feels like the marriage is beyond hope. It feels like you've grown cold. Are you courageous enough to reengage and pursue your spouse? It could be going overseas to a closed country where you know there's huge risk to this. I could be in danger. It could be giving generously to the poor, to someone in need, to missions, when you're not exactly sure that you have enough money to care for yourself. What is it that you know God is calling you to do, but you have felt Too scared or anxious or worried to do it. Well, you now face a choice. That feeling of fear or anxiousness or worry, you can't make that go away. And you're not guilty for feeling that. But in the midst of that feeling, you face a choice. What are you going to focus on and who are you going to listen to? Are you going to focus on the hardships of obedience? On all the obstacles, all the problems, all the risks? Or are you going to focus on the faithfulness of God? Are you going to listen to people who discourage faith, who are like, man, there's no way, it can't be done? Are you going to listen to people who encourage faith, who encourage obedience? That is your choice. What are you going to focus on? Who are you going to listen to? The choice you'll make there will either empower faith or inflame fear and doubt. The decision you make will have eternal ramifications. It doesn't determine heaven for you, but it does determine what opportunities and rewards you have from Jesus forever. So I will leave you with a quote from the hero I began with, Corey Ten Boom. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You know your God. You know what he's done. You know that he already died for you and rose from the dead so he could give you salvation as an absolutely free gift. You know he's your father. You know he's guaranteed heaven for you, and there's nothing you could ever do to lose it. So knowing a God like that, who's all-powerful, who's sovereign, who's all-wise, who knows all things, will you trust him in the midst of the risk, in the midst of the worry and the fear and the unknowns about your future? Will you trust and obey? Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a known God. We know you as our Father. We know you as our Savior. We know that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are loving, that you are wise. We can see in the pages of scripture that you are always faithful to your promises. We rejoice in passages like Romans 8 that promise us that there's nothing that could ever happen that could risk your love for us and your salvation for us. We thank you, Lord God, for all you are and all you've done. We pray that you would help us to be bold and courageous like Corey and Sam and Elizabeth and be willing to trust you and follow you even when it's scary, even when there's great risk, even when there's lots of unknowns and our path is dark in front of us. We pray help us to trust you and obey you Help us to make a decision to walk with you in the midst of that risk and fear so that we might glorify you now and be rewarded forever. We praise you and we thank you, Jesus, that you died for us and rose from the dead so we could have salvation as a free gift. Help us to be bold and courageous to share that good news with everyone we can. We praise you and we thank you. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, who feels called to do something risky this week in obedience to you. Please give them the courage and the faith to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.